I read in the Washington Post that Democrats and never Trump conservatives across the country freaked out. So what did they freak out about, Paul? Well, that's interesting. They freaked out about Justin Amash running for president. Amash, who was the Republican who voted for impeachment uh, against Trump, uh, had some trouble, you know, left the Republican Party, uh, was facing uh, a tough reelection. He is very libertarian, I think, in his in his stances. One of the first uh, 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 Freedom Caucus members was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. And and I think a very uh, I didn't particularly agree with with his decision on impeachment, uh, but I think he was thoughtful about it. And and he's been thoughtful in terms of being a guy who communicates and puts in writing on Facebook the reasons behind every vote he casts. So I have a a ton of respect for Amash, uh, like him very much. And uh, but you would think that here is a libertarian, very conservative Republican, at least in the past. And um, and you would think that, well, he's going to take votes from Trump and he's in Michigan. So, you know, Trump won very, very close in Michigan. Uh, This could be curtains for Mr. Trump. And yet the polling, at least thus far shows something that we saw back in 2016. And that polling shows that there are people who support Mr. Trump, and then there are people who do not support Mr. Trump. And especially among younger voters, they, in 2016, did not like Hillary Clinton. And so if they were able to choose Gary Johnson, who was the Libertarian candidate, or Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate, in a, in a poll, they were going to opt for them. So they, they would never vote for Trump, couldn't stand Trump, but also didn't like Hillary Clinton. And so if they had a choice that seemed at all reasonable, that's where they were going to go to that third choice or fourth choice, whatever. And it appears, and then of course, if the if the polling were just look, you got no other choice. It's Hillary or it's Donald Trump. They tended to opt for for Hillary. So you know, when Republicans, a lot of friends of mine are or staunch Republicans, uh, they hate libertarians running because we're going to take votes from from the Republican, and yet that did not seem to be the case. I think in in past cycles. That has often been the case, at least the, the preponderance of the of the votes, if that's the right way to use that word, uh, was was that they're going to take more votes from the Republican than from the Democrat. But in 2016, it wasn't the case. And in polling in Michigan, uh, this was last year, it showed that when Amash was put in, that Trump was closer to Biden. And of course, you know, people look at the polls and Trump's always behind in the polls. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, obviously he's not going to win. Well, he was behind in all the polls last time, too. And he won. And in fact, it wasn't just that he was behind nationally. He was behind in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, all of which he won. So the polling, uh, the fact that he's down in the polling doesn't matter much. But the fact that with Amash in the race, the difference is less. He closes the gap, sends a very obvious message. Amash doesn't hurt Trump as much as he hurts the Democrat. And I think we're going to find in this election, much like the last one, that there are an awful lot of people who do not like Joe Biden, who are going to vote for Joe Biden in the same way that there are a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump who are going to vote for Donald Trump because they they just dislike the alternative, the other party's uh, standard bearer, uh, bum, <laughs> more you know more than they uh, dislike their own. But I think you will see the pollster kind of explained it that uh, you know this is this is a a plausible choice for someone who so despises both candidates. 
And Hillary Clinton, of course, had a, you know, a, a career full of, of uh, scandals and, and uh, controversy. And so you knew that there were a lot of people who didn't trust her, including a lot of Democrats who voted for her. Biden comes off as kind of the nice guy. But he is not such a nice guy. I mean, there's an ad that's running, uh, just started, Restoration Pack has an ad up today, and I'm, it's running in the Washington, D.C. area, maybe running some other places. But it shows uh, Joe Biden at an event when he was running for president 33 years ago. He's been in Washington for 47 years. So <laughs> that's something that, that uh, a lot of us don't like too much. But 33 years ago, he's in New Hampshire, he's running for president. And someone asked him about his law school experience, and he gets his you know, dander up and says to the guy in really kind of sickening fashion, I'll put my IQ up against your IQ, you know, and, and I went to college and I finished in the top half of my class and I had, I had three degrees and I was named the outstanding political science student. The only problem is, it turns out he was not in the top half of his class. He did not get three degrees, he got one. And he was not named the top political science student. So as he's arguing about what a brilliant high IQ person he is, everything he says is a lie. And then of course, why did he tell these lies? He had a memory lapse. That's what it was. Now, now everyone kind of questions his, his mental faculties today, but lo and behold, uh, what might be news to you is that his mental faculties three decades ago were not so hot, at least by his own admission. So um, anyway, that that I think portends that we're going to have two candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, who are incredibly unpopular, who are not well thought of by many people in their own parties, much less the other parties and independents. And someone like Amash, who at least so far has that strange quality of not being accused of sexual assault. Uh, who is a conscientious, thoughtful guy. I, you can agree or disagree with his politics, but I think from the standpoint of being a stand-up guy who treats his constituents and treats people with respect, uh, I just wonder if, uh, if he's not going to pick up some votes. Now, this is an election cycle because of the love Trump, hate Trump uh, dynamic that probably has less room for third-party candidates um, but bless Justin Amash because, you know, I think he's going to give a lot of people someone to vote for that they can actually feel good about. And that is, that's nice. And in Monday's commentary, which was torch passing in a world of fire, I hearken back because Monday happened to be Ed Clark's 90th birthday. Now, people out there in podcast land are probably wondering, Who's Ed Clark? Uh, did you know? Is that the guy who invented the Clark Bar? And how come I haven't seen Clark Bars in, in decades? But uh, but anyway, no, he's not. Uh, he was an attorney uh, who ran for governor of California in 1978 as a libertarian and got five percent of the vote. A very good candidate, and he ran for president as a libertarian in 1980. That was the first time I got to cast a vote for president. And I voted for Ed Clark. Uh, that was Reagan versus Carter. And it was seen as a very close election. Of course, it turned out that, that Reagan won it pretty substantially. So, you know, it always seems like we're hyped into this. Oh, it's very close, even when it's not close at all. But maybe the media is, is not giving us the full scoop always. They want to sell, you know, newspapers and ads on TV. But uh, I'm very proud to have voted for Ed Clark. I think he was a great candidate. It was a very thoughtful campaign. They had white papers. Uh, you know, Reagan came out and wanted to abolish the Department of Energy and the, and the Department of Education uh, because they were needless at the, at the federal level. And, you know, 
a lot of people say that, yeah, Reagan's hardcore, you know, limited government. But of course, Ed Clark, before Reagan had come out with those positions, had white papers saying how you could do that and how it would not hurt at all in terms of furthering education and energy. Uh, so a great campaign. I was at 19 and then 20, uh, the state chairman of the Libertarian Party in Arkansas and was the chairman of the Clark campaign. And uh, he was the margin of difference between uh, Reagan and Carter in Arkansas and in several other states. Uh, got a, about a, a 1% of the vote. And uh, that was that was something for a third party. And and anyway, I, I'm very proud to have been involved. Uh, David Bowes over at the Cato Institute wrote a nice tribute to uh, Clark and the Clark campaign and his role. He played a much bigger role. But I, I think that you, you look at any election and, oh, it's all critical, but sometimes you lose, but you sow the seeds of future victories. And I think from a limited government perspective, the Clark campaign pulled a number of activists into the political process who believed in limited government, citizen control of government. Uh, and, and I salute Ed Clark, who's still alive and kicking and uh, politically active. I understand he went to a, the uh, a Freedom Conference uh, recently, and, and uh, I haven't seen him in years. But uh, when I get out to Pasadena, California, I, I like to stop by and say hello. He's a great guy also testified at my uh, trial when I refused to register for the draft. So somebody who's, uh, you know, who's walked the walk. And uh, anyway, that, that was our Monday uh, commentary. And I, I, I do think that, uh, especially when you're running and you are almost no chance that, that you could win, the way you run the campaign and the issues you highlight are everything. And I think I think Ed Clark did a great job of that. And it'd be interesting to see uh, what Justin Amash does. I think he will also. Uh, I'm hopeful he'll run a very, very good campaign. We'll see. So we're a few minutes into uh, This Week in Common Sense. You're Paul Jacob. <laughs> we might as well just run the music right now. Here's the music. <laughs> we're in the first week of May, uh, first full week of May, 2020. And your second piece was uh, not about a libertarian candidate. And was it was about Big Brother, but not about Big Brother, um, because it was entitled Beware Big Bother. And it's, it, it's interesting that, you know, you can look at this with Big Brother thoughts in your head or just Big Bother. And the reason we say Big Bother is because what we're talking about is the idea that a number of people have floated, uh, both in Australia and in Singapore, uh, they are pushing people to get an app. It's still voluntary, but they're they're pushing it very hard and saying they can't open up their societies until every citizen has a little app on their phone. <clears throat> and of course, the same thing's being talked about in the U.S. Um, and when I hear this, I think of the closest to Big Brother society in the world today. In fact, in some ways, a much bigger big brother than George Orwell ever, ever thought. And I'm, I'm talking about uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping, who doesn't actually like to be compared to Pooh, uh, but Pooh's a lot nicer guy. So it's really Pooh who should be a little bit upset. Um, but in China, of course, they track people using their phone. Everybody in China has a phone. And it tells the police if they stop you, where you've been, what you've bought, uh, the, the tracking that is going on in that society is incredible. It is totalitarian. And we use that word a lot. And I think sometimes people might think, well, you know, that's over the top. It's not. That's really the shocker, because um, when you think back to you know, Russia, uh, Soviet Union in the early communist days, you look back even to Nazi Germany, uh, the ability to have an underground, uh, the ability to not be 
because of technology not being there, to not be tracked every second, um, there was some chance to resist. And yet uh, today in China, it is just horrifying. And the problem is not only, gee, that's bad. The other problem is, gee, that's what we're coming to. Um, and so, you know, I, I jokingly in this piece uh, talked about the bother because I'm not, you know, I, I guess I show my age because I don't like all these gadgets. They drive me crazy. I remember the first time I had a smartphone and I asked my oldest daughter, to, I said, I said, look, this phone will fly me to the moon, but all I want to do is make calls. Can you please fix it to where I can figure out how to do that? And I think I speak for a lot of uh, old geezers. Uh, um, technology will be a big bother if it starts to track us in the way that I think our politicians would like it to track us, which is a problem, but not quite as big as the problem of it being a big brother. And, and I'll tell you, uh, I'm not suggesting with what I'm about to say, and we'll talk more about it, uh, that our politicians are trying to take over and control us as if we're all slaves. But the way they have shut things down shows that they don't seem to understand that that's the result of, of their decisions. And they seem to think that it's okay for them to order us around and tell us whether we can go outside of our house or whether we can open our business or not. And I won't step on uh, Friday's uh, commentary, but, uh, but I'll tell you what, the, the, what Orwell talked about as a futuristic dystopia is all around us in different shades and degrees. And I think the, the mission for my generation and hopefully other generations to follow is to stop that dystopia from being fully realized. You mentioned going outside. They have told people not to go outside. I mean, there's a lot of places in the United States where governments said you're supposed to stay indoors. I mean, they've been really discouraging that all over the world. But you saw that uh, this last week, uh, Andrew Cuomo was surprised to learn that the bulk of new cases of coronavirus came out of people who were indoors. And there's now a strong link between lack of vitamin D and susceptibility to the illness that is coronavirus. And the well, way to prevent, the way to get more vitamin D is to go outside in the sunshine. Right. My wife loves sunshine, loves the sun. And so she's been complaining because May so far has been very overcast here. It hasn't been like the beginning of summer. It's been like, oh my goodness, uh, cold. In fact, it's going to get, there's some talk that, that we could have snow flurries uh, overnight on Saturday. So, uh, that's not, that's not good. But, but of course, people being out and about doing things, physical activity, uh, one of the, one of the things I've loved about, um, this shutdown has been that my daughter's college shut down, at least said, we're not going to have classes at the school. The class classes will all be online. And so she's been home and we've gotten to play tennis day after day. I mean, we've we've played almost every day, which is just I'm in seventh heaven and she seems to be enjoying it, too. She's starting to push me around the court a little bit with her ground strokes anyway, um, which is good. But we have run into problems with them padlocking, chaining shut tennis courts at the high school and the property owners association chained them up. Luckily, there's these couple tennis courts that maybe nobody's bumped into. And uh, actually, a few people have because more people are playing these days than usually. But we've been able to go there. But that's the kind of mindset that we see where people want to shut everything down as if you're supposed to stay inside. And in fact, last week, we talked about uh, the one video from the Kern County uh, doctors that YouTube had shut down and banned on their site. One of the things they said that I thought really struck me, they said, COVID-19 is in your house. Meaning that all the, the things we bought at the store, and of course now there's more speculation about how, how early it was around, and that maybe, you know, so stuff that you bought 
a month maybe. Maybe you bought some uh, a bunch of uh, stuff that you figured, oh, well, I'll, I'll keep it in the spare room or whatever. Like, uh, you know, we always have extra paper towels and toilet paper and stuff. My, my wife has us pretty well stocked. But people may have thought, well, I bought that way before this, you know, pandemic hit. Well, maybe not. And of course, that means that you could be doing everything right and staying in your house. But then the bottled water that you have in your garage, you go open a new case of it and take one out and you've got COVID-19 all over the place. And the other thing is that it doesn't tend to live well outside in the sunshine. So uh, so it's the, the outdoors is not good for COVID-19 and it's great for us. Because we do get the, uh, it helps our immune system, the vitamin D does, but also just the other things you come in contact with. I mean, if, if we just stay someplace and wipe ourselves down with, you know, Clorox wipes all the time, um, we're not going to have a very good immune system if we do come into contact with it. So it's, it's um, part of it um, is that we have a tendency, I think, to, to, to look at this and say, okay, I don't know the answers. So some expert someplace will. And there are, look, I, you know, if, if I'm up against a guy who's, uh, you know, a, a doctor who studied infectious diseases his whole life, you know, I'm going to be listening to what he has to say. But of course, it doesn't mean that he's right. He could be dead wrong. And in this case, dead wrong is the right way to say it. And so what we want is the free flow of information. And that was a big thing we talked about last week, um, because shutting things down on Facebook or YouTube does not help the discussion. Even if they're wrong a part of the time, we want to hear what they have to say. We want the back and forth. And uh, so I, I do think in the end, we're going to find out as, as has been demonstrated early on. I mean, early on, you had two countries that got hit with this. China, where they did things to lie about it, to arrest people who said the truth about it, and who the rest of the world now is pretty uh, peeved about because by them not coming clean about the truth, they've put us all at much, much greater risk. I mean, there is blood and, and new blood. There's plenty of blood on the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party's hands, but this is new blood. And, uh, and then, of course, Taiwan, where you have such, uh, you know, so many people going back and forth from mainland China to Taiwan, and they get hit with almost nothing because they took some smart moves, the government did, but also because they had the free flow of information. And uh, and I had thought at first that they were forcing everybody to do different things in Taiwan. It turns out they were not forcing everybody to do, you know, to shut down their business or do this and that. And and in fact, they've remained open in large part and people have made smart decisions, just like in this country. Um, you know, we, we quarantine usually the sick, not the entire society. This is the first time uh, I believe in the history of the world, as far as I can tell, that governments have decided we're just going to quarantine the whole country. Everybody just shelter in place. And that may make some sense uh, in a very short period of time. You know, if you were in, in uh, biblical times, um, you know, you wanted to wipe the, the lamb's blood on, on top of your uh, over your door and stay inside that night. But it wasn't an idea that you would do that for six months or two years or whatever, because you'd starve to death. And as we've discussed, Tim, I don't, I don't know that we have on this podcast, but have discussed as we're working on these uh, commentaries through the week, um, one of the problems we may have out of this is that there is some real hunger and starvation in the world because of interrupted supply lines and a lack of production. Uh, not just food and and so on, but other things, and and you know it, it's not just that we might suffer some here in the U.S., but the rest of the world depends on us for some things, um, just like we find out how much the rest of the world depends on China for some things, um, maybe that they they aren't getting, 
And uh, the rest of the world depends on us. And there could be a, a large amount of starvation uh, that, you know, again, you, you make a policy and you say, hey, we, we had a model that said there were going to be 200,000 people die of COVID-19. And now only 70-something thousand have already died. Let's say it's, uh, it ends up being 80,000. Well, we saved 120,000 lives. Well, that was off of a model. Who knows what the actual number is? But good, except if doing that costs several million lives somewhere else in the world, was it worth it? And, you know, I would say no. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all kind of uh, America first in the sense that when you're running the American government, you ought to put the people you work for first. But I don't somehow think that an American life is worth more than somebody else's life. And I think that freedom is the way to let people make their own decisions so that we, you know, we have a little bit of choice and the more choices we have, I think the better the results will be because we can see people make good choices and then we can follow that instead of just all doing what we're told like we're robots. Because then if the people on high decide something that is, let's say, stupid, <laughs> we are all, you know, we're all like lemmings walking off the cliff into the sea um, you know, together. And that's, that doesn't make sense. And certainly the rationale for the shutdowns is gone. It was to protect the hospitals from overflow. Well, now we have the problem in hospitals of underflow, so to speak. That is, I took a friend to the hospital on Monday and I asked them, well, what's been it like around here? It's been dead. There's been almost nobody there because they've shut it pretty much down and they've had no COVID cases to speak of. There's, I mean, they're under really strict protocols, but they aren't, and they're hurting because they're not having any business, so to speak. And people are not getting served who yes. normally would get served. So it's all very and, goofy. And it is, and I'm not certain whether the orders from on high by governors or, or the CDC or whatever, <clears throat> and the C CDC, of course, can't give out orders, um, even though they may not be aware of that. Uh, but governors, you know, these stay-at-home orders and different shutting down different businesses, whether they have told hospitals, you need to get rid of all non-emergency surgeries. And as I think we mentioned briefly last week, when a surgery is not emergency, that means that you won't die if you don't have it today, probably. But oftentimes these are surgeries that are necessary. For instance, let's say that I had uh, several heart valves uh, or, or arteries leading to my heart um, that are partially occluded and they wanna do a bypass surgery. Well, I could have that surgery today or maybe they would schedule for three weeks from now or five weeks from now. And maybe if there was the hospital said, oh, we're expecting all these COVID-19 cases, we're going to push that off for eight weeks. Well, you know what? I could have a heart attack because one of those arteries stops, you know, gets blocked and die. And, and so, yes, it's not an emergency must happen today surgery until it is. And so... There are no doubt deaths that have occurred because of the decision, whether it was the hospitals or ordered by governors, to not have any non-emergency medical procedures done. And it has devastated the healthcare industry. And, and what I'd like to point out to people is, in, for instance, in Michigan, there's a lot of cases in Detroit. In the Upper Peninsula, there's not a lot of cases. Why are those hospitals acting like they can't do any surgeries because there's all these COVID cases? It's ridiculous. And, and so how do you do that? Do you need smarter governors who know exactly which hospitals to? No, let the hospitals make their own decisions. Who, who do you think heads these hospitals up? A bunch of like, you know, gambling mobsters who don't give it or a bunch of 17 year old, you know, street punks or something. These are like real people who, and those are real people too, obviously, but, but they're not the people you want to run your hospitals. And frankly, politicians are not the people you want to run your hospitals. So 
we we again and again need to let people who have skin in the game, who run hospitals, make those decisions, who run businesses, make those decisions. No business owner wants to open up his business if nobody's going to show up. No business owner wants to open up his business if a week later there are going to be a bunch of dead people saying, hey, it's your fault. They're going to be thoughtful about what they do. And of course, it gives those who are you know, quarantining everybody is not the way quarantines generally work. What you want, I, my mother is is 85, 86. Um, she's not going out a whole lot. And that's smart. And, you know, because she's at risk and she's, you know, pretty healthy for someone who's 86. I have friends who've had lung cancer and surgeries and others who have uh, COPD. Is that, that yeah, COPD. Um, and and of course, they're very, very hyper concerned that they not catch this. So they're taking appropriate actions. That's what we want. It doesn't seem to me that you want to shut down everything because it's not sustainable and it's not really that helpful because when you open it back up, the virus is still there. Um, so let people use their own intelligence and their own self-interest in staying alive to work for us instead of like China, letting, you know, somebody at the top make every decision and just order us to do what we're told. Well, that's handling a natural disaster. On Wednesday, you uh, handled an unnatural disaster. Yes. <laughs> that was the title anyway. It was. And, and it, it, you know, this case, AB5, is that legislation was passed in California that basically creates all these rules that make it tough to be an independent contractor. And I know a lot of people, I work with people who are independent contractors, and they know that if they work as an independent contractor for any national outfit outside of California, they've pretty much lost their job because they're not gonna turn them into an employee. That's not how their business model's set up. And it's been devastating. And it's it's there's all kinds of lawsuits that now have kind of been on hold. Uh, but you have all kinds of people from people who gather petition signatures for initiatives, ballot measures that I like or don't like uh, to folks who who work in, you know, doing uh, uh, websites, other stuff in the gig economy. And of course, there are people on the left who hate the gig economy because they see it as something that doesn't allow us to unionize and to create these big monopolies and and everybody gets a pension. Well, the truth is the people who are getting pensions are generally government employees. And that's because their business model is if you don't have enough money, take more from other people or print it up. Other businesses can't do that. And so the pension is largely a thing of the past. And, you know, if you want a society where everyone has a pension, well, you're going to have a society where everyone works for the government. And I don't think that's the society any of us want. The interesting thing to me, there's there's two key things, I think, about AB5. One is that it is a massive disruption that is hurting the very people it claims it's trying to help. It's putting people who politicians don't think have enough benefits out of work entirely. Secondly, because it's been such a disaster, what happens? There's a bill now in the Congress to do AB5, the same sort of kill the gig economy nationally. It's insane. So don't think that this is uh, just California's problem. If I suspect if Democrats control both houses of Congress and had the White House, you will see a national AB5, a national let's kill the gig economy, let's throw independent contractors out of work. And of course, there's no appreciation for the fact that sometimes people like to be independent contractors because they like to be able to control their own workflow. Maybe they, maybe they have kids they take care of part of the time and they only want to work some of the time. Maybe they're older and somewhat retired and only want to work some of the time. 
Maybe they just don't like to be told what to do all the time. They're just funny that way. Well, hey, let people do what they want to do. It's called freedom. And it's better for the economy. It's better for them. Except politicians, it's not better for them. Because they can't organize you as well as they could if you work nine to five, if you're part of a union. Uh, this is politics getting in the way of life. And the other thing uh, I think that's important about uh, this is most people, I think a lot of people will recognize that this probably doesn't make sense to implement right now because things are going on in the same way that in Virginia, the Democrats took over the legislature and passed an increase in the minimum wage and then came back into session after the pandemic hit and delayed that from going into effect. Now, we were told when they passed it that this won't hurt people's jobs. This isn't a problem. It's all good. It just helps workers get more money. No one's going to lose their job. No business is going to go under. So why did they come back and delay it going into effect? Well, because they lied. That's why. Because they know darn good and well that some people are going to lose their job, that some businesses could go under. So we should have a rule. We've said it before. Any regulation or law that has been suspended during this pandemic should stay suspended and should, if it's going to be brought in back into force, should start from square one. Let's have hearings. Let's debate it. Because the truth is, if we if, if this was counterproductive during a pandemic, what reason do we have to believe that it's not counterproductive all the time? I found another one of these situations here locally because I went to the store in Oregon. Oregon has a bag law that they've been restricting your ability to get plastic bags. Well, that's that's been suspended for yes. the obvious reason that the bags you bring in probably have coronavirus on them. And yes. it's much safer to have the little plastic bags, the normal old plastic bags. I, I believe that's true almost everywhere. I've heard about that all over the place. I don't happen to live in a... In a uh, People's Republic community, so so we don't have those kind of restrictions. But you do get, um, you get, you you would get a discount. I, it's like ten cents or something. But if you bring your own bags from home at some of the discount groceries, you get a, a discount. Otherwise, you'd have to pay something for their bags, and they're not they're not plastic for the most part. They're they're paper bags, but it's. It's the sort of thing where now they don't want you to bring it from home. Um, and that's a little bit different. But but what all this says is, why don't we, again, let people be free to use what's most effective for them, both from the store standpoint and from the consumer standpoint? Why are politicians getting in the middle of it and trying to tell us what bags to have at the grocery store? Well, we know, of course, that politicians like to save the world, and that's uh, bags are allegedly a major source of saving the world. That's one of the ways that politicians really can chip in. Uh, I, find it, <laughs> I find it absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. And also, one of the arguments for plastic bags during the debates, you know, to prohibit them or to regulate them or charge for them, that was what we could do when, when I was going to Walmart a few months ago, is that I would have to pay, I think, five or ten cents a bag. They had tougher bags than normal. It was just a different kind of plastic bag. They were a little bit more heavy-duty. They're reusable, they say. Of course, you could reuse the other ones, too. I use it for a number of garbage needs. One of the arguments was that the bags that you own and you keep in your house get disgusting and ridden with germs. Uh, bacteria, mostly, not you know, not coronavirus, yes. but bacteria. And bacteria isn't exactly a good thing. It's not something you really want to cultivate next to your food and meat that you're taking home. Uh, or the things you put on your, you know, the, your toothpaste and your toothbrushes and things like that. None of that you really want, but that's what you're doing when you have those kind of, uh, those kind of returnable and reusable packages uh, and containers, and that's unfortunate. Uh, so we're, we're it's sort of the old arguments against bags did come around again. Now I'm I'm lucky because when I go to the grocery store, my wife always says. Now, there's a bag in the in my car. Get it before you leave and take it, you know, so you won't have to buy a bag. I never remember. 
I never remember. So I always have to buy a new bag. So just, again, my forgetfulness, my demerits as a human being are all huge positives for the world around me. And I'm glad about that. It's some sort of, you know, serendipity or something. Well, I don't have a helpful wife like that, and you should see the disgusting bags that are in my porch. Uh, they are disgusting me. I'm glad that I forget them at home. They are they are beyond hope. Uh, anyway, um, on uh, I want to skip Thursdays. You want to skip Thursdays last. I want to skip Thursday and do it last because we've been talking so much about you know how reactions to the to the coronavirus and so on, the CCP virus, as I'd like to say it, and the Epic Times likes to call it. Um, but let's go to Fridays, which is the wisdom of freedom, which I think keeps this theme up. And then then we'll pick up Thursdays, because I think, I think in short order, people will appreciate uh, Thursday's commentary for, for what it says about where we are politically. But uh, Fridays... The wisdom of freedom, and this is, you know, this is something I've been we've we've said in different scripts, and I've been thinking since the very beginning of this whole pandemic, and how are we going to react, and the the thoughts that in some ways our reaction may be more dangerous uh, to life and limb and and society as a whole than the the virus itself. There was the story of Shelley Luther, who has Salon Alamode. Um, it's the first time I've kind of liked the name of a beauty salon. You know, I don't spend a lot of time at beauty salons, but this one sounds like you could get something really good to eat there. Apparently uh, not, but but anyway, I, I digress. Uh, she wanted to work, and I got my hair cut recently. I don't know if I violated some, and my wife, you know, uh, got me in where she got her hair cut. Uh, and it was kind of on the side. So uh, I don't think it was, you know, it's legal, I think, maybe not. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I don't really care because if it's illegal to get your hair cut, then the law is, a, is a, let's just say an ass. Um, so and and I, you know, I'll use the Lori Lightfoot uh, uh, defense. Lori Lightfoot is the uh, uh, mayor of Chicago. And she made it clear that nobody should be going out to get their hair cut and then went out and got her hair cut. And the reason she did is because, well, she's the face of the city and she's got to be on TV and stuff as if nobody else's face mattered. Um, and of course, I'm the face of this uh, podcast, at least the video version of it. And so I felt a need to, you know, look dapper, uh, debonair, handsome. Anyway, um, so she basically opened her shop. And of course, she, she uh, I, as I understand her business model, she does beauty services, cuts hair, so on and so on. Um, but she also opens it up to others who, as independent contractors, come and have a, <clears throat> you know, a, a position in her salon, and they also make money um, and uh, probably pay her some fee to have that spot, you know. And, and so she made the point that she needed the income, and they needed the income to live. And so she got a cease and desist order from a county judge. She tore it up publicly um, and said, I'm going to keep my shop open. She got hauled before a judge. And this is where I think it really, there's a, there's a, a little smell of just tyranny. It, it, it reminds me of the cultural revolution in China where people were made to hold signs that says I'm a, you know, capitalist running dog, bourgeois bum. Um, and were abused by, uh, you know, publicly, she was hauled into court and the judge said that he would not send her to jail if she would say she was sorry and that she was being selfish and she was putting her own interests ahead of the collective city interest. And boy, she was having none of it. She said, 
feeding my kids is not selfish. And then she went on to explain that these other people need to feed their families too. And so she was sent to jail. She was sentenced to seven days in jail. She was fined $7,000. I guess seven's a big number there. And, um, and all of a sudden it hits the press. And the attorney general says, this is outrageous. This, you know, nobody, no judge should be sending somebody to jail for simply trying to earn a living. And, and well, he said nobody should be sent to jail like her. And I kind of thought, well, what's the difference here? If you're, what if you're not so much like her, but you still want to earn a living? Take the like her out because sometimes people, oh, you know, uh, she's a nice lady. Therefore, she gets to break the law. The law is wrong if it's stopping people from earning a living. And that should be, they should write that right into the law books. No judge can send someone to jail for, for trying to earn a living. And, you know, within certain parameters, if, if you do it with a sack and, and a, a gun and you rob stores, maybe, maybe that's different. But so the governor comes out and he says, which I thought was so mealy mouthed, he, he comes out and says, you know, basically nobody should be incarcerated for violating, you know, this order. Well, it's your order, Governor. And so why, why did you make it an order? And I've thought throughout this whole thing, why don't governors and the president, and of course, the president hasn't, he's given guidance, he hasn't had orders. And in fact, it's kind of struck me as funny that people I know who just hate his guts are are just livid that he hasn't taken over the whole country and told everybody what to do. And somehow it just, it just seems somewhat absurd. Um, but a lot of governors have, and mayors uh, of cities have, have had these like outrageous orders. Why wouldn't they come on the TV, send something to every newspaper, every radio station, here's what we think people need to do. Here's why. Give us the information. Plead with us to do the right thing. My experience has been that people are so ready to do the right thing. They are, and, and I think are very willing to say, well, I'm not sure that's right. But if, if that's what we're going to try as a city, as a state, then I'm going to do my best. You know, people, when they're, they're facing this sort of death and disease, and even if you don't die, maybe permanent damage, you know, most people are thoughtful and I'm sure there's a, you know, there's a jerk every minute somewhere. But the truth is, even if you give the order, there's going to be some jerk who doesn't follow the order if they don't feel like it. So why make it an order? Why not give us your best information, ask us to do the right thing, and then at the, at the very least do that. And then if you find that, well, people aren't following it, say, hey, how do we, how do we make people follow it? How do we get people to follow it. And you do some other ways of persuasion. There are ways to do it without always saying it's my word is law and we're going to put you in jail. And, um, and of course, posting this on Facebook, there were several people who said, well, there's other people who've been put in jail for this, which harkens back to the like her. You know, if you don't aren't quite as articulate as this woman, Maybe you're not the same race. Maybe you're not a woman at all. You're, you're a different sex. Everybody, this idea that we're going to put people in jail because they want to go get a hamburger or they want to go work and earn a living, this is insane. And freedom would be so much easier. It would also, it would also mean we don't have to fight about it. Why waste any time during a pandemic fighting with each other about politics? Give us the information, let us use it, and we'll, we'll go do what we need to do. And, and one of the reasons that I titled this The Wisdom of Freedom is it reminds me of the book, I guess back in 2004, uh, The Wisdom of Crowds. And one of the things that book said, and, and in some ways, 
people sometimes will will look at that that book and the and the discussion because it was a pretty hot book for a couple of years and and a lot of discussion about it that the mass of people the collective is smarter than the individual and of course you know in in some ways that could be true in certain cases but that's not what the book was about or said what the book was really about is that independently thinking and acting individuals collectively are smarter than experts because they have more knowledge and because they're not being told not to think they're not being told not to innovate we we uh, i i harken back to the the mask situation where we were told for weeks that masks would be counterproductive, you don't need them, blah, blah, blah. And I knew why they were doing it, at least I thought I did, which was we don't have enough masks for medical people and we don't want just any Tom, Dick, or Harry grabbing an N95 mask that should go to someone on the front line of a hospital waiting for COVID-19 patients to show up who are never going to show up. But obviously in New York City and other places, they did show up. But my view was, why not tell us the truth? One, then we could maybe believe the next thing you said instead of realizing that we're going to be lied to endlessly. Two, I don't think people were going to rush out and get their own N95 mask. And if you want to, you could pass a law that says it's illegal for anybody to get an N95 mask. Now, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think you'd have to do it. But my goodness, don't lie to us. And then, of course, weeks later, comes out that, well, it'd really be good if people had masks. So, you know, this is the kind of thing, let people be free. We will respond. And, and within days, in fact, even before they came out on the masks, uh, I knew all kinds of people who were making masks, giving them to their friends. I had a... a friend from Taiwan who sent me masks early on. I wasn't so sure that I really needed him. He said, let me send you some masks. And they're good masks. And of course, I've had a couple people outside of my immediate family, uh, friends of my daughter, who worked at grocery stores and they needed a mask and there weren't masks available. So we were able to give them a mask. Um, so, I mean, th this, this, person helps so many people by providing that mask and and yet we were told lies and those a lot of people didn't wear masks when they would have had they been told the truth and and the n95 masks they, they wouldn't have had those but so much so many people have the virus and aren't symptomatic that if people would have worn more masks they would have it would have prevented them, even though it might not have prevented them from getting it, would have prevented them from spreading it. And of course, if everyone's prevented from spreading it, new people don't get it. So anyway, that's that's the the knee jerk is so often somebody from on high who's an expert, please tell us what to do. And it is the wrong move. We are better off with people being free to do what they think is right. And then as human beings do, we learn from each other, we see what's working. We say, gee, I tried this, it didn't work, but Fred over here seems to have a better idea. I'm gonna go get his mousetrap. And and let, the, let our free system work. Don't all of a sudden decide, hey, maybe totalitarianism would be better. It's not. Is an addendum on the question of a mask. You heard the recent story about the TSA and masks. They had hold up over a million masks that they during the whole period where they were not using them and had kept them from the, the rest of the government and from the population. So TSA basically had a, over a million masks uh, just in storage. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of like the uh, all the ventilators that were in some warehouse somewhere that had been delivered, but. New York, New York saying we don't have them. Washington saying we delivered them. And it turns out that somehow the left hand and the right hand didn't didn't know what each other was doing. And um, and, and of course, that happens sometimes. It's not, you know, government's not the only operation that sometimes makes huge mistakes, but it just seems to make them again and again without consequences.
and that's that's where you you run into problems. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Thursday's commentary, which is not about the virus, uh, doesn't really intersect with the uh, the virus at all. It was entitled "Believe Biden?" question mark And this whole story, it really wasn't about Biden. We start out by saying women should be believed and point out that that's what Joe Biden said two years ago when the shoe was on somebody else's foot, when when Brett Kavanaugh was accused of sexual assault uh, and similar accusations in terms of long time ago, probably couldn't be proven in a court of law today. Uh, the stories weren't, you know, solid, easy to understand necessarily. Doesn't mean they didn't happen. Doesn't mean they did happen. Because I think normal people realize that the fact that someone makes an accusation doesn't necessarily make it true, doesn't necessarily make it false, and that that truth or falsehood is not going to be dependent 100% of the time on what sex they are. And yet, so much of our news media, so much of our politics was believe women, that somehow you're a bad person if you just don't automatically believe all women anytime they make a charge. Now, sometimes they'll argue that, well, in the past, it's always been never believe women. Well, I don't I don't know how that's true. I mean, I'm not I'm not vouching for the justice of our justice system. I've spent a lot of my life, you know, uh, trying to fix the justice system. But I can just tell you that for me and for people I've been around, um, when some woman makes a charge, I listen um, because I know that sort of thing has happened. It's hard to believe sometimes that it has happened as much as it has happened. Um, but certainly this idea that somehow women are never believed, that's not true and, and shouldn't be true, but you don't flip back and forth. You don't say, well, geez, for these decades, we're all going to believe men only. And for these decades, we're going to believe women only. That's insane. So the fact is that Biden comes out and says, Hey, what I meant by believe women was listen to their charge, listen to the accusation. Uh, in a open, thoughtful, uh, understanding way, and then vet it, and then look into it, which makes a lot of sense. Joe Biden's right. That's what we should do. But what was interesting to me is that the media, uh, and not you know every media outlet, but article after article, I want to read three quotes that were in Thursday's commentary. The first one is by Tarana Burke, who coined the phrase, me too. And she says, the inconvenient truth is that this story is impacting us differently. She's talking about Biden, the accusation against Biden is impacting us differently because it hits at the heart of one of the most important elections of our lifetime. So this is the woman who came up with the Me Too phrase saying that this impacts us differently because politics comes first. Whether this man is someone who sexually assaults women or not is kind of a secondary consideration. It's all about politics. Pretty hard to fathom until you, until you read the next quote. This, is, uh, this was Linda Hirschman who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Quote, compared with the good Mr. Biden can do, the cost of dismissing Tara Reid and worse, weakening the voices of future survivors is worth it. 
Now, this is a woman who, who wrote this, who has written books about sexual assault and, and all of that, who tends to believe Tara Reid. I've, I've read about the accusations. I have no idea whether she's telling the truth or not. But this woman thinks she's telling the truth. But it's okay to throw her under the bus. Forget about her as a person. And in fact, forget about the damage. Don't forget about it, but it's oh, it's worth it to have Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump is worth damaging future survivors of sexual assault and rape. And here's the third one. I don't want an investigation. I want a coronation of Joe Biden. I don't want justice, whatever that may be. I want to win the removal of Donald Trump from office. And Mr. Biden is our best chance. Now, that was Martin Tolchin. And most people say, okay, and it was a letter to the editor. So it's just some Yahoo who wrote a letter to the editor. Big deal, Paul. Why should we care? Tolchin used to be a reporter at the New York Times and then left there to found and be editor in chief of The Hill, which is a, a, you know, a big publication here in the Beltway, the Washington, D.C. Beltway. He also was involved as an advisor in creating Politico, which is a big political uh, online, and I guess they, they publish an actual newspaper uh, that's around D.C. And so he's kind of an important figure. And what is he saying? He's saying, I don't care about justice. I don't care about what's right or wrong. I care about winning the next election. If this is what is out there in the media, in our discussions, in our political ecosystem, we are lost. This is, and, and I know most Americans don't believe this, but this sort of thinking is driving the political events happening, the political people who run the opposition to Mr. Trump, and I don't think it's I don't think it's just limited there. I think there's some people who didn't like the accusations made about Bill Clinton, don't like the accusation made about Mr. Biden, but haven't really given a second thought to the accusations made against President Trump. In all those cases, I think you can't just say, well, they made an accusation. I don't, someone made an accusation against someone I don't like. Therefore, they're guilty and ignore the accusation against someone I do like. Of course, the one difference in all of those is that Bill Clinton made a payout to Paula Jones, who accused him of harassment. Um, and and frankly, I read when I read the article in The Washington Post, the paper that gets dropped in my driveway every every morning. I read the entire thing. And my first thought when I got to the end was they did not mention they brought up Bill Clinton, but they did not mention Paula Jones. And the reason that so disgusts me is that more than any person. Paula Jones made a charge that I think is incredibly credible. And in a court of law, there was a settlement where Bill Clinton paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars to Paula Jones. He perjured himself in the deposition in that lawsuit. And yet it was Paula Jones who was viciously attacked by Saturday Night Live, was treated in the media as it, and it was the one where James Carville said, well, if you've got a couple bucks and you take it through, you know, a um, mobile home park, 
this is what you're going to find, as if she's just trash. Now, that there are people who have apologized for the way that she was treated, but never has the big media apologized. Never has Saturday Night Live apologized for the way they treated what I view from the results as a honest, accurate, truthful accusation against President Clinton before he was president, when he was governor of Arkansas. And, and yet Paula Jones was dragged through the mud. It's the, it is the most outrageous uh, media drive-by killing of any personality. And, uh, and I think that she has a tremendous amount of courage to have stood up to it. And uh, she, she didn't, you know, didn't, she wasn't wealthy. I know that if you're wealthy and you make a charge by uh, people who hate wealthy people, all of a sudden, you know, if, if you're poor, you're trailer trash if you've attacked their guy. And, and so that's, I guess, what's so obnoxious about, uh, about that. Um, which I've digressed into, but but it just always galls me that these people who supposedly love the poor and are very skeptical about the rich attack the poor woman who makes a charge, but are more believing of, you know, Kathleen Willey got a much better reception uh, when she made the charge against Bill Clinton because somehow she was a wealthier, more accomplished woman. That is such garbage. And I remember a lot of people saying uh, that uh, Dr. Ford, uh, the woman who accused Brett Kavanaugh, that, well, you know, she's a college professor. She's not going to just make something up. And I thought, wait a second. Are we really saying that if you've reached a certain level of education or wealth, that what you say should be listened to? But if you're poor? It shouldn't be listened to. So we, this is not just about politics, although that's most of it, but we have to realize where we are in this country, that, that people believe what they want to believe, that they don't really care about whether you abuse women as long as you support their political efforts regarding women's issues, it's just disgusting. And it's right there in black and white. And I suspect that there are people who read my commentary from Thursday who, because they don't like Biden, liked it, or because they like Biden and don't like Trump, didn't like it. But it was not about Biden and Trump. It was about the rest of us, especially the news media. Thank you for tuning in to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. Paul writes a column weekdays at thisiscommonsense.org, and this podcast can be found on YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcatchers. My name is Timothy Berkelow. Thanks. Thanks for showing up.